Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Best of Fair Mormon and the Mormon Faircast. This episode, we're going to be talking with a few of Fair Mormon's volunteers about the April 2015 General Conference, specifically in this episode, the Saturday Sessions of General Conference. We're going to introduce our guests, uh, starting with Laura Hales, and then we'll go around the horn. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for Fair Mormon. Hi, I'm Laura Hills, and with Fair Mormon, I work on the Facebook page, and I work on the membership committee. Diligently, I might add. Thank you. All right, next up. So I am Stephen Smoot. Uh, I am graduating in two weeks from Brigham Young University (laughs) with a a double major in Ancient Near Eastern Studies and German Studies. Um, And at Fair Mormon, I am the manager of the blog, of the Fair Mormon blog, and I also help... uh, for content or write content for the wiki and answering uh, people's questions that they write in for the Ask the Apologist function that Fair Mormon has. Also quite busy. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations on your soon-to-be graduation. Thank you. Next. Uh, I am uh, Neil Rapley. Um, uh, I do just kind of whatever they ask me to at uh, Fair Mormon. Uh, I oversee a few different committees. Um, and lately, probably what's kept me most busy is... Uh, the uh, Fair Mormon Papers and Reviews uh, series. I've kind of become the de facto editor of that. So uh, that keeps me busy as we look for content and, and try to get it prepared and, and published. So Excellent. And my name is Nick Galetti. I'm the manager of podcasting for Fair Mormon. And today we are going to, again, be talking about various talks from General Conference, particularly the Saturday sessions. And so we're going to highlight, of course, the things that we thought had apologetic value, although all talks were quite good in their own in their own ways. So let's go ahead and start out with uh, Laura. What did you have as uh, the first thing you wanted to bring up? Well, I'd like to start with uh, Elder Oak's talk. I call it the parable of the sowers just because that's kind of the metaphor he used for his talk. He um, His message was particularly relevant for what we're dealing with a lot in the world now with the internet he, was, he started off by talking about new members, how not being rooted in the word, when opposition arises, um, they can be scorched and withered away. In an age dominated by the internet, which magnifies messages that menace faith, we must increase our exposure to spiritual truth in order to strengthen our faith and stay rooted in the gospel. So I thought that alone was really important just because um, something that maybe someone might have an issue with in the past, they really didn't have a pulpit to express their thoughts on that, but the internet has made everybody have a pulpit. And so any kind of issue that comes up instantly, they have uh, the ability to spread their message to everyone, and their message is magnified and things that might be small in the past now seem very large. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's interesting that Elder Oaks not only mentioned the Internet specifically as causing um, problems for converts or members of the church, um, but also, and maybe you'll mention this again, Laura, but, or sooner, um, he also mentioned not having the right perspective when we uh, encounter these issues. He used the analogy of looking through a keyhole and we can only see like a limited perspective. And so that might fight, that might um, force us to like hyper focus on one or two issues, sort of pet issues while missing the bigger picture. And in my experience at Fair Mormon answering people's questions and sort of uh, discussing people's concerns that they encounter on the internet, I've discovered that having a limited perspective very often, very frequently can lead to uh, faith crises because they're not able to properly contextualize things. Yeah. And so I think it's good that he also mentioned that as well. I love his analogy of the keyhole view of the gospel because there are some hot topics out there right now that really bother people. And his advice was... This limited view focuses on a particular doctrine or practice or perceived deficiency in a leader and ignores the grand panorama of the gospel plan and the personal and communal fruits of its harvest. And I think as an apostle who's gotten some criticism lately on things he said in the media, I thought this was a really um, good context to phrase this keyhole view of the gospel on. Don't focus on what I said at a particular time. 
you know, let's concentrate on the whole gospel. Uh, yeah, actually, I thought the uh, that particular example was uh, really interesting as well. Um, it seemed almost, uh, for me, almost uh, vindicative, if you will. Literally days before um, General Conference, I had been thinking about the same kind of concept, except primarily with the Book of Mormon. Uh, but I was thinking about how we tend, you know, people tend to get so bogged down with these narrow questions about DNA or language or horses or whatever. And uh, I think they're missing something, a bigger picture, not only spiritually, but even in terms of like the historical and cultural ways that we can look at the book. Um, my own experience has been as I broadened myself and started reading more into um, the research that's gone into the Book of Mormon, uh, I suddenly found that even though some of those questions didn't get answered, they became a lot less important as I was able to understand the Book of Mormon in whole new ways. Um, and I think it's the same thing that Elder Oaks is trying to tell us about, you know, the history of the church and the gospel as a whole is even as we realize that there are these problems and and these questions are going to come up and there's going to be concerns and we're not always going to be able to resolve them. They're going to be uncomfortable sometimes. But I think, you know, we need to stay, step back and take a look at a broader picture than just focusing on these small incidents in church history as if they make the whole tapestry. Yeah. And I think part of the the keyhole lock analogy is fun too because it's this idea that a lot of people think that these answers are behind some locked door that they they need to find the key to get to it. Right. So there's even a kind of a fun subtext there. But uh, all right, moving on. Stephen, what do you have uh, next that you want to bring up? Well, I think uh, the big thing that everybody on social media is discussing today is the uh, opposing votes in the sustaining of church officers during the Saturday afternoon session that made, uh, I think it even made national headlines. Which is um, typically an uneventful type of yeah. thing in some respects. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not the first time that this has happened. Uh, there's been a couple of times uh, in the 70s and 80s when this has happened. Um, but just today with social media, it just sort of exploded, right? Like within moments of it happening. And... Uh, you know, there was this group uh, of individuals who evidently have some kind of concerns or issues with church leaders, and so they felt it was necessary to voice their opposition or that they will not sustain the brethren. Um, and as I was thinking about this, as I was sort of internalizing it in my reaction to it, um, two things came to mind. Number one, uh, and people pointed this out, that they do have a right to express their Absolutely. opposing vote. Like, you know, that it's right there. That's why they ask them, right? Any opposed, so manifest it, right? right. So, not yelling it necessarily. Yeah, but... yeah, not yelling it, but at least in some way manifesting, right? So right. they absolutely have the right to do that. But in conjunction with that, I have to wonder, the more important question is why are they doing it? And to what end are they uh, doing this? And, you know, far be it for me to judge these individuals personally, but I really couldn't help but feel that this had some kind of a publicity stunty kind of vibe Absolutely. to it. Absolutely. Because, you know, right afterwards they went out and had a interview with the media and had a press conference. And it seems to me that the reason or the, you know, the reason you have a media or press conference afterwards is because you want some kind of publicity for it. And so the fact that they're doing that at least makes me leery, you know, and I suspect there's some sort of publicity stunt going on here. They want, as you said, they want to pulpit for whatever grievances they might sure. have. And now it's easier to do it, right? In the age of social media. But um, I'm curious if any of you have any thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, I've thought a lot about the, you know, it's it's what's being talked about. So I've given it some thought myself. I do think that uh, at least on one, some level, I, I'm not surprised that they felt inclined to yell at least on the first, the first go around because it is a big conference center. Uh, you want to make sure that you've been noticed. But I think you know, President Uchtdorf kind of got the drift after the first time, and I, I don't know that it was necessary to persistently continue yelling their their opposition. Uh, but in any case, what I would wonder about, um, and, and like I said, I, like Stephen, I don't want to be judging uh, the individuals in any way, shape, or form, but, you know, General Conference isn't the only forum we have to, uh, you know, raise our hand, either sustaining or opposing uh, the church leaders at ward conference and stake conference um, were also asked to give our sustaining votes and or, or opposing votes if that for, be for the, even callings yeah yeah for even callings and and the most basic things but but you know we're even at ward conference and stake conference we're asked about the first presidency and the presiding brethren and whether we sustain them um, and so you know to me I wonder have they been opposing them at the ward and stake level on, on those opportunities and speaking with their leaders. On those occasions, 
Um, and did they go and speak to their stake president in the wake of their opposing vote in general conference? As so that's they were what they asked. were told to do, right? You know, right. Yeah. Um, well, that's the procedure. And, and yeah, that's that's the procedure. And uh, so, you know, that's what I would wonder about. If this is over some kind of legitimate concerns, I would expect that they have been opposing on those uh, at those other opportunities, and that they've are they've been discussing their concerns with the appropriate uh, leaders. But well, typically I mean, you have we don't know. When you when you go in for Temple Recommend interviews, you're asked very similar questions as well That's as far true. as sustaining the brethren. And these people in their internet presence, at least, identified themselves as Temple-going individuals. So I question at some point, where, when did this start? Yeah. When, when did their opposition begin? Um, because you can't have it both ways. You can't be in opposition and be temple-worthy. So at, at this point, the procedure is such that they're going to go talk to their stake president or that th that's what they're entitled to do. Um, but yeah, I think this is going to be a continuing story, right? We're going to try and find out what's going on with these people and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But the idea being, of course, that they do have the right to to offer their opposing vote. In fact, it almost in some respects gives authority and, and weight to a consenting vote because you it's not just something that's passive that you just do by habit, that, that you really mean it. And in some respects, this actually gives more meaning to your, your sustaining vote in its own way. I don't know how, but it sure. does. Sure, yeah. So, all right, Neil, you're next. What's oh, the next story? Um, all right. Well, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, not too much about President Monson, actually, and uh, his priesthood session talk. At least uh, there were a couple of quotes that stuck out to me precisely because, and I don't remember how long ago it was when this first started happening, but but somebody has been saying a lot on the internet, and, and it's, it's caught a lot of attention in, in the past that President Monson doesn't testify of the foundational truths and the foundational events of the restoration. Hmm. I hadn't heard um, that. You hadn't heard that. It, no. It's been, Stephen is aware of it. Uh, it's been circulated before. And so there were a couple quotes actually from his priesthood session talk that jumped out at me precisely because, at least as I read them, they sound to me like he's testifying of these events as he, as he relates some experiences he had. Um, so here's the first one. It's, we may differ in age, in customs or in nationality, we're united as one in our priesthood callings to teach to each of us the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood to Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith by John the Baptist is most significant. Likewise, the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood to Joseph and Oliver by Peter, James, and John is a cherished event. And so to me, that sounds pretty definitive that he regards these uh, the restoration of, of both priesthoods. Those are founding events of the restoration, and he regards those as real events that uh, not only happened, but that kind of bind us together as, uh, as, as, as priesthood brethren and, and as a church as a whole and, and, and the foundation upon which we rest. The next quote, uh, and it's just a short one, but he's telling the story about when he went as a youth to uh, Cardston, Utah, to see the grave of Martin Harris. No deacon, teacher, or priest from our ward will ever forget the memorable visits we made to Clarkston, Utah, to the graveside of Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. As we surrounded the tall granite shaft which marks his grave, and as one of the quorum leaders read to us those penetrating words from the testimony of three witnesses found at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, we developed a love for that sacred record and where the truths found therein. And so, you know, again, that just sent, that sounds to me like pretty strong testimony that the Book of Mormon is true, that it's a sacred record, not merely a text or a story, but it's a sacred record. Um, and that Martin Harris's experience was real with the plates and, and things like that. Uh, and so I thought that was significant and important because of the rumors that had been spread before that, that President Monson doesn't testify of these things and therefore doesn't actually believe them anymore or, or something like that. Yeah. Where were you hearing this? Oh, the, uh, it's been floating on the internet now. Um, there's a, I can think of one or two websites that, that, you know, explicitly and specifically bring up this criticism and uh, for any of our listeners, you need to go no further than the Fair Mormon Wiki. Here's our little plug <laughs> to the Fair Mormon Wiki that has an article that addresses, that addresses this very thing. 
And what you'll discover is that even if President Monson is, you know, too busy testifying of Jesus, which he usually does, which I think is nice, um, he also <laughs> testifies of the Book of Mormon and the Restoration uh, plenty, right? And we have yeah. statements well, and then, uh, both yeah. before becoming president of the church and after becoming president of the church, both in general conference and at temple dedications and in other events where he in some way mentions his testimony of the Book of Mormon or of the priesthood restoration. And so if you ask me, this is frankly a very nitpicky and silly criticism that involves a lot of mind reading and logical jumps that I just don't think are sound to make. Yeah, uh, well, it's just that and, President Monson you know, is some sort of closet doubter or closet disbeliever. Is that, is that the goal? Is that what they're trying <laughs> no, to show? No, that's exactly what they're trying to show, okay. right? And yeah, they're trying to you know perpetuate this narrative that, look, even President Monson doesn't really believe because, you know, look at all this stuff on the internet now. <laughs> See, you know, not even he's immune from it, right? That's the narrative they're trying to get. And I think it's just ludicrous on his yeah. face. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and obviously these are, just, these are just a couple more quotes to add on to the pile like i i i'm certainly not meaning to to imply that there's been any weight to the rumors or or, or that he really has been absent in so testifying it's just whenever i do hear him testify or, or talk about that now it it stands out to me precisely because i've heard that criticism uh before okay all right we're back to you laura um, you know, I have an unexpected n- nugget here I'd like to share from <laughs> the uh, General Relief Society president was Sister Linda K. Burton. She said, Please know that I am painfully aware that the topics of fatherhood, motherhood, and marriage can be troubling for many. I know that some church members feel that their homes will never reach what they perceive to be the ideal. Many are hurting because of neglect, abuse, addictions, and incorrect traditions and culture. In a a conference session that was dedicated to families, this was a very empathetic statement for those in the church who will never have that quote-unquote ideal family. It was truly empathetic. Um, Brene Brown, who's a prominent psychologist, has done a lot of work on empathy. And she says empathy is is more than just saying, I'm sorry, this happened to you, but aren't you glad? Because it could be worse. It's saying, I know this is hard for you. Let me come down and hold your hand. And I loved that as a person who don't, won't ever have that quote-unquote perfect family to hear that empathy because, um, you know, I don't know if it's an apologetic point, but with when we're always hearing about eternal families and it being a husband and a wife and biological children— I think and this is a shout-out to those maybe who have same-gender attraction but are trying to keep their faith in the church, trying to keep their covenants, to those who are single who haven't been able to find an eternal companion, or to those who are childless. And I just really appreciated that empathetic statement that you don't always get from the brethren or the sisters in in, uh, general conference. Yeah, definitely. Um, And actually, I felt like— while there was a lot of harping on the ideal family and and the family concept in this conference, there was there was a, a good couple of uh, of I thought some some great empathetic uh, statements toward to that end that uh, you know we do understand that this ideal isn't necessarily going to be how things work out for everybody, um, and, and uh, you know uh, letting you know that the brethren understand their pain. Elder Packer or President Packer, excuse me. President Packer was really hard to make out, I know, but there was a point in his talk where he mentioned um, innocent victims of, of of things like divorce and infidelity and things like that, and 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 people who have been who have been single, um, and 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 other things like that. And it was uh, a, a statement that I thought he really showed awareness uh, of what people are going through and, and letting us know that you know it, it's not just. President Packer, who's aware and is saying something nice about it, it's like the Lord is aware of it, and and He understands what that's going through. And I think that certainly ties into what we want to be doing apologetically, as we try and help people find, you know, deal with concerns they have with the church, whatever they may be. Oh, and I I specifically liked the phrase "incorrect traditions and culture," because uh, the church gets a lot of criticism as a culture for things that happen that have absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. Definitely. And um, so I, I liked that disclaimer. These are incorrect, and we don't support them. And I we think that that's regionally true in some cases, because not every part of the world does the church function and behave the same way culturally. Like, I'm from California. It seems different in some respects than here in Utah, 
different parts of the world even kind of have these different traditions that they that they all go on and they all have the capability to be in line with the gospel or out of line with the gospel and i think that in this particular case that that kind of covers everything right that umbrella of of any incorrect tradition Oh, I think that's astute of you to bring up that it's very regional because I've lived all over the country and I found diverse congregations. And definitely if you live in Utah County, Davis County, Salt Lake County, Mm -hmm. the demographic you go to church with is going to be different. Yeah. Well, and I think think what we find, just like Nick was uh, suggesting, is some regions are going to have different incorrect traditions and other regions Mm -hmm. are going to be a lot better at accommodating different things. Um, you know, uh, and, and then, you know, and this is, this isn't even thinking about how dramatically different uh, church culture probably is in places outside of the United States, um, where, uh, the regional differences, uh, really begin to, to, uh, well, they become more present. Yeah. Become more present. Exactly. You, You see them. Yeah. Was Sister Burton's talk the one that was kind of an endorsement for men and husbands and supporting them, or was that well, a different she, one? Well, she did say to uh, women and men complete, they don't compete with each right. other in mm-hmm. a marriage. I think that was an important point to make, too, when we, we're, we're seeming to see this this feminism wave come out and, and patriarchy is bad and, you know, all these different kind of views of gender roles and here she's coming out trying to post this um very together zion work you know working together kind of thing as opposed to i'm a man and you're a woman and we operate differently and apart this was much more let's complement each other so i think that even has an apologetic angle when you consider you know certain certain movements that we've been seeing lately uh, well, I, I think it appeals to the, I can say this, to the younger demographic <laughs> where they're at, you know, they're having careers outside of the home, whereas I necessarily didn't when I was raising my children. And so they're actually asking of their husbands to do things that I didn't feel like I could in my generation. And I thought this was validation of that, that this is something we can do we can complete not compete each with each other we can work together toward a common goal and i think that that will make a lot of people young people happy yeah it certainly helps settle that gender yeah that gender argument that seem people seem to be having and i'm not jealous at all (laughs) (laughs) well good all right so that that's the done with the hidden nugget right yeah okay moving on Stephen. what do you have next well, actually, um, I appreciate that hidden nugget from Laura because it ties in well with what I wanted to talk uh, talk about next, which was Elder Christofferson's talk um, that he gave Saturday afternoon. And um, I, I very much enjoyed Elder Christofferson's talk for a number of reasons, um, but two ways really stood out to me. Well, three ways, actually. The first is just fun. The fact that he quoted, and here's his name, and if you want to get fun brownie points with your friends, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right, the German theologian. Very that good. He, uh, <laughs> yeah, must be getting so, a degree in that. Or yeah, something. <laughs> something like that, right? You know. So, uh, so you know, the fact that he was quoting this great German theologian was a little uh, feather in my cap, right? To hear that, so that was pretty great. Um, but no, uh, more seriously, he he spoke about um, basically the doctrinal rationale for the church's position on marriage and why it is that the church insists on marriage being between a man and a woman. Um, and I think this was important because many have asked recently and still continue to ask, well, why is the church opposed to same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships? And, uh, president, or I'm sorry, Elder Christofferson gave what he called the social science argument, which he called compelling. Um, but he said beyond that, there's the doctrinal reason why we in the church have this position and how it all had to do with the plan of salvation. Um, he spoke about uh, the premortal world or uh, the premortal life and uh, eternal intelligence and being children of God. Um, but he went on to explain the idea of the creation of the earth, which, by the way, was interesting that he said, I don't know exactly how the details of the earth was created, but I know it was created by God and Jesus Christ, right? Which uh, ties in with Elder Holland's marks that he yes. had now on Sunday. But he specifically says there was the creation, Adam and Eve, who came to create physical bodies for Heavenly Father's spirit children to uh, inhabit on earth. Um, and the idea of raising children in a physical environment where they will learn faith in Christ and learn these Christ-like virtues so that they become uh, they can become spiritually reborn. 
And so I would think this would be significant for anybody who had questions, well, what's the church's rationale for opposing same-sex relationships? You could point to Elder Christofferson's talk as a really good sort of summary on the church's doctrinal views on the plan of salvation as to why we insist that marriage is recognized in the eyes of God between a man and a woman. And there's been some trendy uh, articles and blog posts recently trying to argue against this quote-unquote heteronormative view of the plan of salvation in Mormon theology. And some have tried to say, we need to get beyond this. We need to sort of, you know, discard this heteronormative view of the plan of salvation. But I think this is really clear, and Elder Christopherson made a very compelling case um, for why it has to be, quote-unquote, heteronormative when we look at the plan of salvation. Um, so that was one thing. And then finally, this is what ties in with your remarks, Laura, this uh, golden nugget of yours. Uh, Elder Christopherson spoke about marriage, of course. But he said, even though marriage is the ideal, clearly, right, enjoying the fullness of the, of the blessings of exaltation come from marriage and having a family, um, he says, even though we know this is the ideal, we understand and recognize that not everybody can reach this ideal in mortality. And he specifically mentioned three groups, single individuals who, uh, for whatever reasons, and he listed specifically um, uh, a lack of opportunities to get marriage, same-sex attraction, physical or emotional um, issues, or... Um, just an inability to overcome fear or insecurity to get marriage. That those that was one category. He mentioned individuals who've experienced divorce as another category, and also couples that can't have children as another category. So infertile couples. And it was very reassuring to me that he said, "Don't think like you're just being abandoned or cast aside as second-rate citizens in the church because you haven't met this ideal. There's still a place for you here. You can contribute to the church." And all of the blessings of the gospel are available to all of God's faithful children, either in this life or the next. And it was a very great way to acknowledge the reality of our complex world, but also re-enshrine the gospel ideal and the gospel truths that we have. And for me, that was very personal and touching since I myself am still single. You know, I'm almost 25 and graduating from BYU <gasps> and I'm single. Can you believe it, right? <laughs> like, I'm an aberration at BYU, right? You know, but this is very personal for me and others that I know who are going through similar issues. And so I very much appreciated uh, Elder Christofferson's remarks for that reason. I felt like he might have even been directing some of his comments to his brother, Tom. Yeah. Who is struggling, or if you will, experiencing same-sex attraction and yeah. and and trying to make his way back into the church. So I think that Tom and people like him, that message was was very resonant with them um, as well. Uh, yeah, well, I think, uh, I did think Elder Christofferson's talk was um, uh, was a very good talk, um, hitting on, just like Stephen said, I think it is important for people to understand we aren't just opposing same-sex marriage and same-sex attraction because we don't like them or because um, you know, whatever. It, this isn't just blatant bigotry. Like, there, there's there's a very complex doctrinal uh, underpinning to this that uh, we understand God has revealed certain things and God has a plan for all of us and he's trying to help us become like him and um, and, and there's a process for that. And I, I think it's important and I think Elder Christopherson's a really great person to have talking about it because of the family connection he has and and stuff like that, because it's certainly important to understand that uh, we we know it's difficult. We know it's difficult when when for whatever reason you feel like you don't have a place in that plan. Um, and and just like I was talking about earlier with with Elder or President Packer's remarks and everything, not only do the brethren know it's difficult, the Lord knows it's difficult, and you know He can He can be there for you. He will comfort you. He will assist you as you try to come to terms with it and and we're not going to sugarcoat it and be like oh it's going to be really easy to feel accepted in the church if you have same sex attraction like no it it's not it's going to be really hard um and i think uh, i think what we're seeing is an increasing awareness about this from the brethren and and i think it's great to see them giving talks taking this head on and 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 trying to help uh, promote understanding in both directions there. And it's good that it comes from general conference so that the general membership yeah. can see it, not some regional yeah, something that, that may be misquoted as people share it around. So. Right. Well, and I thought it was really his kind of subtle reference to some things going on in pop culture at the end of his talk. He said, in defense of the family for these people who will never have the ideal— as they're trying to live the gospel and righteousness, we will march with you. And, the, and that was another empathetic statement. Mm -hmm. You know, we may not march against uh, 
things that we believe are our doctrine, such as a marriage should be a man between a man and a woman, but we will march with you and hold your hand as you go through this trial. And I really, really appreciated that. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, I guess uh, I'll try and keep us in, in a similar vein, a similar theme, <laughs> if you will. Uh, I want to go to, to uh, President Uchtdorf's priesthood session talk um, for a moment. And um, uh, there's a few different things I'd like to do with this, but I'm going to just skip, uh, skip the first part for a little bit here and, and uh, talk about one thing that I noticed about, you know, the, the main theme of his talk is that, you know, we, we need to be genuine. We need to be real. Uh, about who we are, um, and about, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't project ourselves as, as this perfect Latter-day Saint, um, when that's not really who we are, uh, right? But he also talked about priesthood leaders, and, and he gave the example of a stake president who looked at his stake goals and thought, man, these sound really great, but then after giving it a little more thought, I'll just, I'll go ahead and quote from him. He says, I know of a stake where the leaders set some ambitious goals for the year. While the goals all looked worthwhile, they focused either on lofty, impressive declarations or on numbers and percentages. After these goals had been discussed and agreed upon, something began to trouble the stake president. He thought about the members of his stake, like the young mother with small children who was recently recently widowed. He thought about members who were struggling with doubts or loneliness or with severe health conditions and no insurance. He thought about the members who were grappling with broken marriages addictions, unemployment, and mental illness. What stuck out to me is one of the groups that he talked about is he thought about members who were struggling with doubt or loneliness. And then he goes on. And the more he thought about them, the more he asked himself a humbling question. Will our new goals make a difference in the lives of those members? Um, And I thought, first of all, I thought it was significant that when President Uchtdorf was presenting this in, in, in priesthood session. He included in his list members experiencing doubt, um, which uh, I think is, is important because it shows that the brethren are aware of kind of this, this wave of doubt. I think one of them actually used the phrase wave of doubt in their talk in general conference, um, but I can't remember who it was. Uh, but in any case, as this wave of doubt uh, goes across, and, and, and some Latter-day Saints, particularly of the younger generation, are experiencing that, they're aware that this is something that's a trial. It's, it's being mentioned right up there with, with divorce and single motherhood and, and things like that that are, that are kind of the typical trials that you hear about being mentioned. And now being a member who, who's experiencing doubt is, is kind of part of that. And they're expecting stake leaders and ward leaders to be conscious of that and to be asking themselves if the goals that they're setting for their stake in their ward and the things they're aiming to accomplish are accommodating for and 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 helping support these members in their trials. I thought that was that was really important, really significant and really encouraging. Yeah, I mean it, when you when you look at I don't know how many of you have served around bishops or bishoprics and that sort of thing. I'm I'm an executive secretary in our ward right now and I think that there's a lot that's on their plate. And when someone comes in and they bring a, a faith question or some type of doubt to the bishop, their spiritual and emotional immune system might already be pretty well taxed with all the other issues that they're dealing with in the ward. And so if someone comes in that you know you would think otherwise is not going to be uh, difficult or have these types of things, when they come in, you start to feel a little like overwhelmed like mm-hmm. oh my gosh one more thing you know and how do we deal with that and so i think that it's almost a shock to some you know to, to to have people experience this as as a as a leader you you need to be aware or be made aware that okay this is going to happen these are these people are going to be coming in don't be so shocked by it don't act like mm-hmm. the world is yeah. ending we know you know that that's part of the re- reassurance right 
that the first presidency, the higher, you know, councils of the church are aware of all these things, and yet they're calm. They still have faith, yeah. and and we can move forward and address these issues. Well, that well, message is important. Yeah, and you know, and it, it's when you really start to think about it, it's not just like some offhand mention in President Uchtdorf's talk. Uh, this is also being shown in the fact that the church is making a concerted effort to provide more resources, uh, not only to the members who are, who are going through those things, but for bishops and sake presidents who are, who are trying to assist in council members. Uh, you know, the most prominent of which of those resources being the gospel topics, essays that have begun to tackle and, and address in fairly candid ways, uh, hot button issues like polygamy in the book of Abraham and, um, and other, other topics like that. So it's not just, they're not just saying, hey, be aware that there's people doubting out there. They're also providing resources so that bishops, you know, when they're, they're prepared for when this happens, they have resources they can fall back on and we can begin uh, recognizing and working on this problem more effectively, I think. Yeah, because bishops can't be the fountain of all knowledge. (laughs) They can't be therapists. They can't be all these things that people expect them to be. So yeah, it's very difficult. Laura, do you have anything else? Sure. Elder uh, L. Whitney Clayton talked about embracing belief instead of choosing to doubt. Mm, And I think as apologists, we get criticized quite a bit about our desire to choose belief. And this is kind of validation for some of the things I've gone through myself over the last couple of years when I've had questions. Uh, Some of his quotes were... We likewise must give place for the hope that we will find spiritual light by embracing belief rather than choosing to doubt. Our actions are the evidence of our belief and become the substance of our faith. We are choosing to believe when we pray and when we read the scriptures. We are choosing to believe when we fast, when we keep the Sabbath day holy, and when we worship in the temple. We are choosing to believe when we are baptized and when we partake of the sacrament. We are choosing to believe when we repent and seek divine forgiveness and healing love. There may be times when we have been hurt, when we are tired, and when our lives seem seem dark and cold. There may be times when we cannot see any light on the horizon and we may feel like giving up. If we are willing to believe, if we desire to believe, if we choose to believe— then the Savior's teachings and example will show us the pathway forward. Every day each of us faces a test. It is the test of our lifetimes. Will we choose to believe in Him and allow the light of His gospel to grow within us? Or will we refuse to believe and insist on traveling alone in the dark? All of us will, at some time or another, have to traverse our own spiritual wilderness and undertake our own rugged emotional journeys. In those moments, however dark or seemingly hopeless they may be, if we search for it, there will always be a spiritual light that beckons to us, giving us the hope of rescue and relief. That light shines from the Savior of all mankind, who is the the light of the world. And I like this concept of being able to choose to believe. That doesn't mean choose to hide your head in the sand. It doesn't mean choose to ignore what you're reading or the um, questions that you have. It's okay to have questions, but I think questions and belief can coexist at the same time. As you're working towards answering these questions, you also can believe in those foundational elements of the gospel that you aren't questioning. In fact, you, you have to, right? In exactly. Order to come to you the lean answers. on yeah. those as you're exploring these other items that you don't quite know how to explain at the time. And so um, his concept that you can choose, I think, was really an important statement. Well, faith is is an act, right? It's not something mm-hmm. that's acted upon uh, as we, we use that scripture. But I, I can definitely hear people making the statement, faith is a choice, doubt, that, that seems hard to swallow that, that doubt is a choice. Um, that that's kind of a bitter pill in some respects because they'll look at something that happened in church history and say, I learned this. I didn't do this. I learned this. So how would you answer someone maybe that looks at this idea that critically perhaps that doubt is a choice? Well, and 
Well, I think that it's a matter of semantics, which word you Maybe. choose. Okay. Because I think it's okay to have questions. It's okay to say, I don't understand why this happens. Doubt more implies that you have received questions, but you're unsatisfied with them. And so that you've already partially made a decision. And so I think this is as much a plea to keep your your options open, keep your mind open to keep exploring as to shut it down by saying, I doubt because I don't like the question. Or you disagree with the answer. You've or you disagree given. with the answer, which, you know, I think we've all disagreed with the answers at times we've been given, whether it be something to do with the church or something that's happened in our life. We wonder why the Lord didn't intervene and say, hey, you know, don't do that. That'd be really dumb. You'll mess up your life. But, and, you know, sometimes we glorify doubt. And say, as we pass through doubt, we gain more knowledge. But we can also gain more knowledge by keeping an open mind, having faith, studying, without accepting that answer and saying, okay, this is the end all, be all. I'm done. Yeah, and with with like the Givens's book, The Crucible of Doubt and things like that, it it does take on, you, you say semantics, but it really does imply quite a bit of how you approach whether you're talking about doubts that you disagree with the answer or you're dissatisfied with the answer versus I just have questions and I'm still looking for an answer. The, people use that doubt differently, and I think that, that that may cause some of the conflict there. So Elder, you're saying Elder Clayton's talking about the doubt where I disagree with the answer that's been given or I'm just dissatisfied with the current state of, of your their faith, I guess. Well, yeah, because I don't think there's anything wrong with questioning. I think, I mean, that's how you learn. Our church was established by a world-class co- questioner. He didn't, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he didn't, uh, yeah. you know, what he was hearing was dissonant to him. He didn't understand what was right and what was wrong. Some would call that doubt. But I think in Elder Clayton's talk, he would say that's just questioning. And in the past, sometimes we haven't rewarded questioning in our church as much as we probably could. Um, And hopefully that's changing. I know um, even in Sunday school class, sometimes when you express a thought, maybe that's a little bit different than people have heard. Sometimes people will have a negative reaction and hopefully— you know, as time goes on, we'll become more open to say, hey, you know what? It's okay that this person has questions or has a different view of this. And we can, you know, expand our view of what can happen at church. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, a great comment that you made, Laura. And that segues actually very nicely with something that I wanted to bring up. Again. If that's okay, if we move on to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Bring it on. Um, actually, it's really great because uh, the other talk I wanted to mention was Elder Cook's talk in the afternoon session. And he touched on this exact subject of doubt and having questions um, and the significance of that. And so I want to read a quote from Elder Cook uh, that he said, there's, there's two things I want to read, but the first one is this. We recognize that some members have questions and concerns as they seek to strengthen their faith and testimonies. We should be careful not to be critical or judgmental of those with concerns, great or small. At the same time, those with concerns should do everything they can to build their own faith and testimony. Patiently and humbly studying, pondering, praying, living gospel principles, and counseling with appropriate leaders are the best ways to resolve questions or concerns. So to unpack this a little bit, there was two things I I picked up on this. Um, The first, he says, it's uh, we recognize that people have questions and that we, as members of the church, should not be critical or judgmental of those with questions. Um, Since there are legitimate questions I think all of us have, like even I have several questions I don't fully understand the answers to. Um, Well, sometimes with Fair Mormon, we hear so many questions we— yeah, we get bothered by so many questions. Like, we yeah. get short-tempered even. Well, yeah, and 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 sometimes we can become impatient. I know I do. Yeah, yeah. no, we can sometimes become impatient. <laughs> yeah. And I've spoken with uh, friends and acquaintances that have these questions, and I sometimes think, oh, good grief, really? That's bugging you of all things, right? But like, <laughs> but that's something that is you know not good yeah. to do. And Elder Cook mentions this yeah. that that we 
should understand. It's like having a student. Like you wouldn't get mad at a student if they didn't understand something. That's not an effective way to teach. Yeah, you treat rather, them individually. Right. Treat them individually and try to help them individually with whatever the concerns might be. So that was the first thing that I think was very wise from Elder Cook. Um, and the second thing is um, he had then had words. So that was on the part of the believers, right? This is how believers should behave. We should be loving and kind and helpful. Sure. On the side of the doubters or the questioners, he also gave this very wise counsel of um, specifically a humbly studying, pondering, praying, and living gospel principles, okay? So, you know, coming back to, you mentioned Terrell Givens and Fiona Givens' wonderful yeah. book, The Crucible of Doubt. And I, I very much enjoy that book because one of the things they mention is that, you know, it's not just enough to have questions. You should be actively seeking ways to resolve these questions. And even if we don't fully understand all the answers right now, we should nevertheless strive for a paradigm that is uh, open-minded and accepting and looking for a question or looking for answers. Um, you mentioned, I, I can't remember if it was you, Nick, or Laura, that mentioned that somebody or some individual sort of celebrate doubt, right, and sort of glorify it. I think that was Laura. Um, and, and I agree that that's not very helpful to sort of put it on a shrine or a pedestal and say, look how great it is to have doubts, right? It's good to have questions, but it's also good to try to resolve questions, right? And and so at Fair and Mormon, typically when people write in, one of the things I like to do in my response is to see, well, what are you studying? What are you reading? What resources are you going to, to try to gauge how active they're involved in this, right? And, and in doing so, you can respond appropriately with, well, maybe you should check out this and this, or maybe you should consider this. Um, and so it's a, it's, it's a two-way street here. Believers yeah. have to be kind and patient and gentle with those with questions, but the questioners shouldn't assume special privilege just because they have questions. Um, they should have expectations on themselves to basically do their homework and study and be, uh, you know, pondering and living gospel principles. And, uh, in my experience, as I've as I've witnessed individuals either stay in the church or leave the church after encountering questions or difficult issues, um, this really is the key deciding factor. Uh, are they going to just jump ship when they have a few questions and then they go to some parts of the internet that aren't very nice or helpful to faith? Or are they going to stick it out and are they going to try to live the gospel and find answers to their questions? Um, and that can make all the difference. And so I really appreciate that Elder Cook made this distinction both the questioners and the believers have things to do, and we should be striving for that. One of the other things that I've noticed, too, is that some of these people that have, let's go to the doubt uh, designation, that when they have the doubt and they express it online, it may resonate with other doubters, and therefore it becomes part of their identity. And they don't want to let go something where they feel connected and feel that they have value as a doubter. So it, it becomes even harder at that point emotionally to give up your doubts because— now you're giving up a part of who you, you've been, I don't know, what's the right word, where you feel validated. No, absolutely. In that. Yeah. And so it becomes harder to get through and give up the validation and your doubts. Yeah. Which I think goes to show, just I'll mention briefly, um, the, the narrative I hear a lot from some corners of the internet is that no rational thinking human being could possibly believe in Mormonism after knowing all this stuff. Because for them, it's just a simple matter of, I just learned the truth with a capital T and I was compelled to abandon Mormonism, right? right. But really, as human beings, there's psychological, emotional, um, you could even say existential things, factors going on on deciding if you stay or leave. And that can absolutely be a factor. And if people decide to leave the church, or stay out of the church after they've encountered faith-promoting material or, or material that answers their questions. So it's more complex and nuanced than what we typically hear. And I, I appreciate that Elder Cook recognized this and encouraged us to you know, keep this in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if I could just comment a little bit on both uh, Stephen and Laura's uh, recent comments. I think there is, uh, there's a lot of continuity here, and we're seeing that, you know, a lot of, you know, from, from President Uchtdorf, Elder Cook, uh, Whitney Clayton. Elder Clayton, we're just seeing a lot of recognition, a lot of great counsel on this. Um, and we do tend to see uh, almost a celebration of doubt. Uh, and what I think gets missed on that is while you might persist in doubts or doubts might persist in your mind, uh, what's important is that you move forward in faith and, 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 and you continue to maintain and, and choose to believe, as Laura talked about. And I'm going to actually bring up Stephen R. Covey, which uh, I can't remember exactly what he said on this, but I do remember uh, reading Stephen R. Covey's book, and he talked about how there is a, there's a gap between when we learn something or, or something happens to us and we react. And we don't think about that gap very often because our reaction is usually just instantaneous. Like, it happens and we react, and, and we don't think about that. 
But there is a gap there, and, and we get to choose what goes in between there. We get to choose our reaction. Um, and I think that's an important step to realize is that when we're exposed to information about the church that is maybe not consistent with the image of the church that we've had in our minds or that we heard from our primary or Sunday school teachers growing up or whatever, uh, we do have the ability to choose how to react to that. And we don't have to react in doubt. We don't have to react in fear. Instead, we can step back and, and we can react in faith and, and, and recognize our own limitations and, and pursue further information. It all really, you know, bringing up my blog post again, I talked about how at, at some point, as much effort as I might put in or somebody else might put into providing like rational reasons for believing in the Book of Mormon or anything else that we accept as, as Latter-day Saints as, as true, at the end of the day, it, it just comes down to the fact that I choose to believe that the Book of Mormon is what Joseph Smith said it was. Um, and that choice leads me to pursue the questions I still have in certain ways. Um, and that choice has also led me to incredible avenues of explore, exploration and discovery that I feel like validate that choice and, 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 and illustrate to me that there is some content and substance to this beyond just wishful thinking. But it really does come back to making a choice yourself about it. Yeah. And, um, and, then, and then following up on that choice with the kind of, the kind of resources you pursue, what you're going to do about it. And, and that's going to be true whether you react in doubt or not. Uh, I can't, I've had multiple conversations with people I know have suffered from doubt and it's, it, and, and, or, or had to deal with doubt in some way. And it's like uh, if they're, wor they're dealing with polygamy and I say, well, have you heard of Brian and Laura Hales? And they say, well, yeah, I've heard of them. Well, what have you read from them? Uh, nothing. Oh, well, what about Don Bradley? Yeah, I've heard of him. Well, what have you read from him? Oh, nothing. And it's, you know, it's like, okay, well, it, it, how much of a concern is this for you really? Uh, and I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm trying to blame them uh, but at the but same that's time, okay to a point, right? Well, that's well the yeah, point. yeah. At it's the same choice. time, I want to like unvictimize them, like yeah. like let's not treat them as victims, and let's you know don't treat yourself as a victim. Like you have the capacity to go out and find resources. You do, and and you don't have to let yourself be a victim. And this is part of what Stephen R. Covey's talking about when he's talking about how you get to choose how you react to the things that happen to you, and so uh, you know I. I try to, you know, I, I don't want them to feel like I'm, I'm pointing fingers and I'm, I'm, but at the same time, I, I try to help them recognize that there are resources out there and that if they're really genuinely concerned about this, they can pursue these. And I know sometimes it might be like, oh, it's going to take a long time to read a three big volumes, three volume set on, on polygamy or a big 800. <laughs> well, that's why they have the new fourth volume. Yeah. Make it a, big, <laughs> a big 800 page book on, on the book of Mormon in Mesoamerica or whatever. Uh, but you know, yeah, it's, it's, it takes time and it's hard work and, and, you know, it's taken me, I've had questions and I talk about, I tell some stories actually on my blog about questions I've had that they bothered me and I didn't know what to do about them. And it took me years and it wasn't just reading one book or or one article, it was reading an article here and a book there and another article here. And it took me years to eventually like come to an understanding where I thought, you know what, that question, it's done. It's resolved. I don't need to worry about it anymore. Well, um, and the, the other thing that I've noticed is in the past, people have kind of made an assumption that people that are, that are in doubt or have critical stances on the church are somehow spiritually lazy. Uh -huh. But the more I've kind of been around this fair Mormon effort, this apologetic effort, it's not that they're lazy. They're actually quite intense and active, uh -huh. but some are just active and fighting for their limitations. They're fighting for their doubts. Again, going yeah, back to that's this idea to that it, it is actually. a choice. Yeah. So it, again, it's not a matter of, of laziness or that they're incapable, uh, but, but at some point we do have to take ownership for our faith. We can't show up to the uh, proverbial judgment bar and say, my spirituality was someone else's fault. It yeah. just doesn't yeah. work that well, way. And, and, you know, like, I, I really don't want to under, like, undersell, like, how hard it is, that initial wave of doubt, if you sure, will. Sure, absolutely. When that first exposure comes. I know it, it's hard, and I know it's, it's not easy, but you've got to be able to, like, help yourself step back, 
right? And you probably are going to have to do it several times through the process, but you've got to be able to step back and say, I'm going to choose, I'm going to make a choice here. And my choice is to exercise faith and to seek out more knowledge. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying, like I said, that's not going to be a one-time choice. You're going to have to make it probably daily for a while, right? And, and eventually the choice gets easier though. It really does. Yeah. And for me, like when I was eight years old, my, my grandpa gave me uh, my Swiss army knife. And, you know, those things are very sharp when you first get them. And my grandmother was, why did you give him that? That's going to, he's going to hurt himself. He's going to cut himself. And of course I come along and do the, no, I'm not going to hurt myself. I'm not going to cut myself. And lo and behold, I pull the knife out and I go, I wonder how sharp this is. And I should, the first thing I do with it is I cut myself. And the reaction that I had at the time was that stupid knife, not I cut myself or I chose to stick my finger on a sharp blade and I mm-hmm. cut myself. And in that regard, I look back on that and go, I was given a tool. I was given something that had a purpose and a place and I misused it. I, I used it wrong. I chose that. Yes, I blamed the knife. If the knife wasn't sharp, I wouldn't have cut myself. Sure. But the reality is, is there's still a part that we each play in what we choose to do. And it's easy to become a victim of our own choices because then we don't have to feel the weight of those. So I think going back to these, these talks that we've you know, mentioned that there's a certain ownership that the, that the brethren and, and the general officers of the church were trying to get us to, to see with these talks and general conferences to understand that we, we can make a choice with, with regards to our spirituality and, and our family life and things like that, but where there isn't, don't worry so much about it. The Lord's atonement is there. We won't be denied blessings for things that are out of, out of our control. Mm-hmm. So who has something left? Where, where are we left with? Or should we wrap it up? Do you have... you have? I have one more thing, but I don't want to take any time from Laura or Neil if they no, have... No, you're fine. Go ahead. Um, the reason I want to bring this up is because um, this also made waves on the internet on some of the sites that I keep my eyes on. It was going back to Elder Cook, and uh, he was addressing... And this is a really big thing we hear these days, right? That the church is experiencing some sort of mass exodus of yes. members, right? And that it's like the Titanic, right? And... It's just sort of teetering on the edge, right? And any day going now, down. Yeah. and and you read some of these people on the internet that have like these fantasies about the day when the church will be like this, you know, again this little small cult in Utah and have no influence, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And Elder uh, Cook says this. So in responding to this this claim, some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today, and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. The number of members removing their names from the records of the Church has always been very small and is significantly less in recent years than in the past. The increase in demonstrably measurable areas, such as endowed members with the current Temple Recommend, adult full-tithe payers, and those serving missions, has been dramatic. Let me say again, the Church has never been stronger. But remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. We reach out to everyone. And here's what I sort of want to just uh, throw out there for discussion real quick, is the big uh, reaction against this I saw from some was to say, well, it may be true that uh, only a few people are taking their, are officially removing their names off of the list, but what do we do about the number of inactive or no longer active members who, have, who haven't bothered to take their names off the records of the church? And how does that come into accounting for you know, the true level of activity in the church? And I thought that was an interesting, you know, I guess, caveat here going on. I, I have no doubt to, you know, or I have no reason to doubt Elder Cook or to think he's lying or whatever, as some people think. Um, I'm, you know, he has, of anybody else, you know, he has direct access to, this, to these sort of numbers, right? Sure. He can actually see what's going on here, I would assume. Um, but I think this is an interesting dynamic that we have to still keep in mind is, you know, we look at sort of by the numbers thing, right? And we can think we can quantify, but there may be more going on than we fully understand, um, such as inactive or non-active members um, or members who may leave for other reasons, right? Uh, in my own life, I know some individuals, friends, and some f- uh, family and acquaintances who have left the church not over doctrinal or historical issues, not over a faith crisis, but for other reasons, right? Certain lifestyle choices they wanted to live or uh, just feeling sort of burned out with religion, et cetera. So it's sort of nuanced, and I'm curious to hear what everybody else here uh, in the room thinks 
on this subject and if they have any insight or uh, comments. I know Laura has something to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was was definitely not going to jump in front of her. (laughs) (laughs) From the historical perspective, I think that it kind of begs the question because um, I think we've never had 100% attendance or 100% activity. And so to say the church is stronger than it's ever been, Mm, it may be stronger than it's ever been and still have a lot of people leaving. Mm -hmm. So from from that perspective, I thought of that. I I liked that he included measurable Mm -hmm. things like members who are endowed getting temple recommends. The number of stakes that are increasing, the number of temples that are being built. They don't necessarily go out and build a temple for two people to right. come to once a month. So I liked those statistics probably maybe more than sure. the statistic that he started out with. Yeah, actually, that that's similar to my own thoughts. It's really hard, I think, to to measure the actual number of people uh, leaving in, in some capacity, whether formally removing their name or not. Um, my assumption, and I grant that it's just a big assumption is that whatever historical trends in, in, in names, name removal are, I'm, I would assume that that is reflective of whatever the trend is for, for leaving, but I have no idea. Um, but I think it's important, like Laura said, that he included these other statistical measures that indicate the strength of the church, building temples, endowed members, temple recommend holders, things that that don't just represent a body in the pew on Sunday, but someone who's actively involved, a, a continual growing need for temples. Like she said, we don't just do that because there's, you know, like two members who want to go somewhere, right? We, we do that because there's an increasing pressing need at our temples to, to relieve the how busy they are and, and things like that, right? So so those are indications, I think, real positive indications of the strength of the church that, that indicate that whatever the, the trend might be in terms of people leaving, we still have a lot going forward here and a lot of strength and, and a lot of growth going on here that's real and genuine and not just inflated statistically. Well, and we can bring it right back to the keyhole Sometimes we each have our own little ways of keyholing different issues. And if you're critical of the church or if you have doubts or whatever category you're in and you start to find other people that think the same way you do, the next thing that comes on into your mind is there's way more people out there that think just like me. And if I left the church and I go on the ex-Mormon pages and do all these different, look at how many more people there are and your awareness Mm -hmm. grows. Therefore, you think the problem is bigger than it really is. Mm -hmm. And so when you... When you listen to a certain level of opposition, you think that opposition is really loud, when it may not be at all. And I think that by and large, I mean, even within Fair Mormon, the general membership has never even heard of Fair Mormon. We wish there were more that took you know time to access the, the information that, that's out there. But we're very aware of opposition. We're very aware of people leaving the church or taking their names off. Because we deal with that, but by and large, I don't think that this is something that the average member of the church really considers the same way. So yeah. we have our own little keyholes, and we have our way sure. of looking at things in you a know, very narrow w- way. What I'm actually really curious to see, and at the risk of like infecting this idea into <laughs> into a certain audience, uh, what I'm actually really curious to see is if if Elder Cook's statement there becomes a rallying cry for people who are trying to organize these take the name off the oh, roles of the yeah. church. Mass events and uh, all that. Events and stuff. And if they're able to actually galvanize more people to take action in that regard because they feel like having not taken their name off, they are being uh, misrepresented or neglected in, in, or unaccounted for in some way. And just a, just yeah. a curious thing I'm going to be looking out for, I, I, think, I guess. I think it's very real possibility. <laughs> I think I'd also just like to mention briefly... Um, you know, we can play this game all day and all night on why people are leaving, um, but until we have some kind of data to actually deal with, right, it's going to be speculation for the most part. Rigorously think, collected Right, yeah, data. none of this self-selecting survey stuff we've been seeing going on here, like, you know, actually statistically significant, you know, rigorous things. But I think, Nick, you're absolutely right when you say we have to be careful on either side, either absolutely. for or against. You get involved in a community and you just assume that everything is this way when the issues can be much more complex and there's a lot more stuff going on here than we assume. So um, 
I, that's just kind of my takeaway from this, right? As I as I encountered this quote from Elder Cook was to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm sure the church is doing great, right? We're building through new temples and new stakes, et cetera. Um, but there may be some issues going on here that we still need to address. And, you know, it's not just a numbers game, in other words. I'm and, sure Elder Cook would be the first to say, yeah. this number may be lower than people think, but that's still way higher than it should be. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And well, so I mean, it goes hand in hand with uh, President Uchtdorf's remarks about how we need to not just worry about what's countable and what's measurable, but let's let's make sure we're focused on what the real issues are, what people's real issues it, yeah. are, right? And and making sure we're taking care of the people and and taking care of whatever their concerns are to the extent we possibly can. Yeah. Because one is too many. Exactly. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So was that the last one? We're, we're putting a capstone on the Saturday sessions. I think I think, so. I think that's a good way to end. Yeah, I think I think so. So thank you guys all very much. Uh, we will be posting a link to the conference articles or I guess talks and presentations as they become available at the posting of this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. And uh, stay tuned for the following week. We will have uh, I guess we'll call it part two for the Sunday sessions and the general women's meeting uh, that will be handled by Steve Densley and Cassandra Hedelius. So stay tuned for that. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes under the name Mormon Faircast. Questions or comments can be posted at blog.fairmormon.org in conjunction with this episode. Thank you for listening.